0: Uh, if you haven't already, please turn to Revelation 21. Uh, thank you, Justin, for reading that lengthy passage so that uh, that whole chapter so that I don't have to read it, uh, and you nailed every single uh, jewel that you've read. Um, I had to look it up, and I had to go on Google and, you know, do that pronunciation thing. Agate. Crystal. Gold. Gold! Oh, gold! I thought it was gold. (laughs) Tonight, we're going to be talking about the eternal state in our Why We Believe series. This is the 17th article in our Articles of Faith of SFBC, if you go on our website. Uh, It says, the eternal state. Uh, As the Bible clearly reveals, the time will come when every facet of God's reign will merge into one eternal kingdom on a new earth in which the triune god will be gloriously present and his enemies will forever vanquished and his people will serve him perfectly and reign with him victoriously forever see history is heading toward a new heaven and a new earth which is often referred to as the eternal state this is not a mystical realm but a real tangible place where the people of God will dwell in the presence of the Triune God forever, and most scholars use the term "eternal state" and heaven interchangeably. Right? We rarely evangelize and say to unbelievers that, "Oh, there's an eternal state and there's a hell." Or maybe when we anticipate the reunion, our reunion with Christ, you know, we don't say like, "Oh, I know when I die, um, you know, I'll, I'll go to the eternal state." We usually say, oh, I'll just go to heaven. And that's because when the Bible uses the term heaven, it is usually referring to the abode of God. This is the dwelling place of God. In Psalm 80, 14, it says, Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine. Hebrews 8:1 says, Now the point in what we are saying is this: we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So this is simple to understand. When we die, we know that we will be in a place where God is, right? This is what we think of as heaven. When we but as we read through the Bible and particularly through Revelation, we start to see how the term heaven can be referring to multiple things, and one of them being the eternal state, which occurs after the millennial kingdom. And the millennial kingdom, this is where Christ returns and reigns for a 1,000 years while Satan is bounded during that time in a pit. And in Revelation 20, the apostle John transitions from the millennial kingdom to the eternal state, by describing the final condemnation of God's enemies. So even though the term heaven is not used in scripture to refer to the eternal state, it is nonetheless an appropriate designation since the triune God will reside with redeemed humankind on the new earth. This is what the eternal state is all about. This is the the final end of all of God's plan. That at the very end, this is the eternal state. Nothing else will happen after that. Everything else, like the rapture, the tribulation, the second coming, the millennial kingdom, the judgment before the great white throne, will all happen. And then finally, we get to the eternal state. The eternal state is like the crescendo of a song or the apex of a mountain. And speaking of mountain, I remember having a conversation with a brother. I'm not going to mention his name. But has anyone seen Tim Pang here? Oh, right there. Okay, Tim Pang. Yes. So Tim Pang and I, we were in Davis at that time, and he told me, he said, hey, have you tried this drink called Baja Blast from Taco Bell? And I said, no, I can't say that I have, you know, because I have proper grammar. And he said... Oh man, it's so good. And I said, "Really? Is that good?" And he said, "Yeah." I said, "How how good is it? How good is it?" He's like, "Oh man, it's so good. It's like imagine this. Being on top of the Swiss Alps at the highest point and you just want to yell, "Yurulehihoo!" <laughs> and I said, "Huh. That's interesting." I said, that's interesting, but it sold me. It sold me because every single time I go to Taco Bell now, you can ask my wife, I want the Baja Blast. And he was right. It was good, right? But it was so good to him at that time that he just couldn't give an adequate description. So he painted this picture of being on the Swiss Alps, even though I've never been on the Swiss Alps. But the fact that he yodeled, I knew it was good. And as much as we talk about heaven, it's hard to give an adequate presentation of heaven, right? It just can't be done. There's no words to really express it. Paul expresses the fact that he knew a man that was caught up in the third heaven, and he came back, and he couldn't speak the things he saw. There was no language for those things. The only thing I can give you tonight is what Scripture has to say about it. Right? Heaven is a level of existence that we cannot at this moment comprehend. And we all have strange ideas. I'm sure you maybe grew up like I did thinking that heaven would just be boring. It would just be this very boring place. You know, I learned it from the cartoons where they show little cherubims and a little chubby Cupid where this Cupid is wearing a size diaper that's a little too big for him and it looks like it needs changing because while he's flying it's sagging and we just imagine just floating on some cloud where everything's just the same, and we're all playing this musical harp because in heaven, we're all musically gifted, right? Everyone, equally music gifted, but for some reason, we all chose the harp, right? It's like, why can't you just pick the guitar, you know? You had to be fancy and play the harp. Then, as we got older, Right? We grew in our spiritual knowledge and we learned about glorified bodies. Bodies that we will have when we pass. Bodies that are pure, reflecting the image of God. Sinless, righteous, spotless. This body can approach God. It's pleasing in the sight of God. But when we think of glorified bodies right, even when we were younger, or even now, maybe even now, we probably had jokes about it, like, oh, when I get to heaven, I don't have to work out, because I have a glorified body, you know, I'm going to be buff, right, I'm going to be buff, but when you think about it, everyone is going to have a glorified body, right, so if everyone has a glorified body, now you're just back to being basic, (laughs) but it's hard to really know, right It's hard to really know there's a lot of speculation of what we could look like, and you know am I going to have you know you know my biceps turn into triceps here, you know Maybe I'll have quadriceps over here. I don't know. I mean, like does that really matter? <laughs> it's hard, it's hard, right It's hard because a lot of these things have been pretty abstract to us. And as we try to formulate a concept of heaven, we get all lost and realize there's a whole other dimension to it that we don't have the apparatus to proceed. So all together, we, we try not to think about it. We don't think about it because it's too hard. And we shy away from it like most eschatological things. Eschatology is, is too difficult sometimes. And that's why whenever the concepts are too abstract... Right? It has to be referred to in symbols. And I think about Ezekiel. In chapter 1, um, if you ever want to read a chapter where you can read it and then reread it and then go away and still not understand it, read Ezekiel 1. Ezekiel tried to describe the glory of God. He tried to describe what God would be like, what it would be like to perceive God. And incidentally, that's what heaven is. Heaven is where God is and where I am in full perception of him. And so Ezekiel tried to describe the glory of God, and all he could come up with was the most fantastic but confusing picture of a blazing sun splashing its life off, polished jewels, and the light came off like spinning wheels of color. And all of this was mingled with a bunch of angels. Right? So see how, if I were to ask you to draw this picture, it would, it would be a little confusing. Then you get to Revelation 21 and 22, and John tries to describe the new Jerusalem. And he sees it as a prism of light of jewels and gold and pearls, and every bit of it is transparent. Right? It's transparent, and God's blazing light just scatters itself through a heaven that is nothing but polished diamonds and jewels, and the color splatters throughout eternity. Chapter 21 is really a story of the blessed, because in chapter 20 of Revelation, we saw, that we saw the end of Christ's kingdom on earth. Chapter 20, the millennium ran its course, and Satan was finally cast into the lake of fire. The reign of Christ ended in a terrible rebellion, which was put down, and then all of the God-hating, all of the rebellious, all of the unsaved of all the ages were brought to the great white throne for judgment. And chapter 20 ended with this judgment. And all those folks were sent into the final hell. So now, when we arrive at chapter 21, we see what happens to the godly. What happens to those who put their faith in Christ since the cross? What happens to those pre-cross who were saints, who believed God and it was counted to them for righteousness? This is where the story begins in chapter 21, and it talks about the reward of the blessed. The eternal dwelling place. The whole course of history ends with the great white throne judgment. and The unredeemed are punished. And then comes the eternal state. The eternal heavens. Tonight, let's take a look at some characteristics of the eternal state. Number one, there will be a new heaven, and a new earth. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Look at verse 1 of chapter 21. John says, there's a new heaven and a new earth because the old ones have passed away. God will get rid of the old one in order to replace with the new one. Early on in chapter twenty. Verse 11, he sees a great white throne, and then he says, from its presence, earth and sky, or earth and heaven, fled away, and no place was found for them. God gets rid of the current earth and the current heaven. And now, scholars have kind of debated over this, matter in whether or not the current heaven and earth are actually destroyed. They debate whether... If it's actually destroyed, some say yes, it will be totally annihilated, completely destroyed by fire. And they refer to passages like 2 Peter 3, 4 to 7. They say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. See, they're getting tired. They're saying all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. See, God once destroyed the earth by water, but next time he's going to destroy the whole universe by fire. And then in that same passage, or in the same Second Peter, if you look at verse 10, it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed, meaning laid bare. Or how about Isaiah 65, 17? For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things should not be remembered or come into mind. This sounds like the destruction of the universe, right? It's going to be be a noisy and fiery destruction, but other scholars have taken another view, in which this is more of a temporary destruction, that is reversed through resurrection and restoration. In Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, he suggests that Peter may not, Peter may not be speaking of the earth as a planet, but rather the surface things on the earth. That is much of the earth and the things on the ground. So he's talking about just the things on the earth. But I like John Piper's take on this the most in which he says, God did not create matter to throw it away. When Revelation 21 one and 2 Peter three ten say that the present earth and heavens will pass away, it does not mean that they go out of existence, but may mean that there would be such a change in them that their present condition passes away. We might say the, pat- the caterpillar passes away and then the butterfly emerges. There's a real passing away and there's a real continuity, a real connection, right? God's whole intent here from the beginning was to restore. When Christ returns, God's agenda is not to destroy everything and start over, but, but to restore everything. The perfection of creation, once lost, will be fully regained, and then some. This word new is the same word used in 2 Corinthians 5.17 when describing the new creature. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, Right. The old has passed away. Behold the new has come. Right. It's like a new creation for us. If you think about our earth now, there are parts of the earth where you're like, "Oh, come Lord Jesus, please." You know, especially if you ever walk around the, the, the shady areas of uh, downtown SF, um, you're just like, ah, you know, come, Lord. You know, this place is, is it's, a, it's a mess. But then there are other places like Hawaii where you're just in awe every time the sun rises or the sun sets, right? Some of you guys have these really gorgeous photos on Facebook or Instagram, and it's so beautiful and you're so proud of it that you use this hashtag. What is this hashtag called? No filter. No filter. Because you don't need it. You don't need any filter to make it look nice. Right? You go to a tenderloin, you take a picture. Oh, filter. After filter. <laughs> Give me that filter. Here, no filter. right? The sun rays create this nice light leak effect on your photos, right? Each beam telling its story of warmth. Or perhaps, you know, you're in Tahoe and the snow-capped cabin you're staying at is surrounded with perfectly looking trees that stand so tall that it's like it's guarding you from society, you know? Maybe it's alive and it's like, You know, you're thinking about like Lord of the Rings kind of trees, right? Maybe it's like that, Right? When you take that picture, people see it, and they're in awe. But as soon as you get in your home, and you're stuck in traffic, and trash is flying everywhere, people are cutting you off, the news comes on, and you hear about murder, right? You hear about murder. I just read on the news today on SFGate about how a father murdered his daughter and he locked her up she was 11 years old and they were trying to solve this case and he he they found out that he locked her up in a dog cage bound her with zip ties and then purposely gave her they he gave her food but he he doused it with rice vinegar so that it wouldn't taste good to her but then over time he neglected her and and she died and then he buried her in the backyard he didn't say anything Him and his new wife, the rest of the family, they knew about this. And read about that, and you're disheartened, right? You realize it's basically an earth that is full of disease and pollution and death and disorder, corruption. It's been ripped up by the miseries of godliness. But imagine... Imagine what the new earth will be like, no longer being under the curse of sin, no longer infected with thorns and thistles. The soil will never be opened for a grave. It will be never moistened with blood or tears. An earth whose forever hills will flow with salvation, whose eternal valley is known only as the sweet paradise of God. That is where I want to be. And if you think, in some of these nice, beautiful places that you've got a nice earth now, you haven't seen anything yet. Let's move on to the next characteristic of the eternal state. There will be a new Jerusalem. There will be a new Jerusalem. Go to verse 2 of Revelation chapter... 21. Verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. If you got a new heaven and new earth, you have to have a new Jerusalem. John's attention is drawn to the crown of the new heaven and the new earth. And somehow in the vastness of all of this new infinite heaven's and earth, there is going to be the crown jewel of everything, which is the new Jerusalem. And in this new Jerusalem, this new city, we can go in and out and around as we please. How do I know this? I mean, what gives me this idea? Well, if you look at the passage, it says it it has 12 gates. And if it got 12 gates, these gates are never shut. Somebody is going in and out. And so we'll be able to to kind of just move throughout the entire universe. This is the crown jewel. This holy city, new Jerusalem, comes down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It is looking at its best, right? This imagery is that of a bride, of, of brides when they get ready. I mean, when brides get ready, they take a long time. They take a long time. It's not, it's not because they need it, you know, like, oh, they, they need the extra time. But they're doing the best they can to be, to look the best. This is, this is the most important part in their life, the most important time in their life. Usually the groom is the one getting ready at the last minute maximizing his sleep, right? I speak with experience because that's what I did, knowing that, you know, I only needed maybe about 30 minutes, but I actually took an hour and a half, I think. Uh, I couldn't get the tie just right. I had to get Justin Lau to help me. My hair was going crazy. Meanwhile, the bride takes about five to six hours, and trust me, I was, I was four, okay, Lindsay's kind of like, my wife, she's like kind of grinning, like, dude, I don't need five to six. <laughs> and it's true, she doesn't, yeah, she's probably, she was probably faster than I was. I think she was chilling, <laughs> watching TV and stuff. <laughs> but I'm just going to say that the bride usually takes five to six hours, right? I filmed a lot of weddings as a wedding videographer back in my, you know, prime days when I, could, when I could bend my knees and stuff. <laughs> and I remember whenever our crew got a request to film a wedding, right, they would say, hey, can you film the getting ready portion? Right? I said, getting ready. Oh, no, getting ready. That means it's going to be really early. I'm like, what time? Ten? And they're like, five. Five. Five o'clock. Oh, my goodness. Five o'clock. How about six? Let's compromise. Six. Six. Okay. Six is good. And trust me, when, I, when the time comes and you guys get, you know, are getting married or anything, you talk to your videographer and you say, like, hey, you know, you know, can you film me getting ready at six? And they're like, yeah, no problem, dude. I guarantee you when they go back to the car, they're like, <laughs> Because that's what we all did. We all cried. The whole team was like, oh, we got PR6. Because it's, it's 6 a.m. all the way to 10 30 p.m. This is the pinnacle of all getting readies, right? This is the most important day in a bride's life. And John is here describing the city. The city is absolutely gorgeous. But it's not so much the city that brings significance. It's the kind of city it is. This is a city that's filled with the bride of the Christ. right? With the bride of Christ. All the saints will be here in the city. And some theologians call this the bride city. Because it is occupied by people who are the bride. And revelation is written to the church to give the church comfort. The church was being persecuted when John wrote it. And the comfort was in knowing that this was coming for the church. Now notice another interesting thing in verse 2. It was coming down from God out of heaven. And that's pretty interesting because it doesn't say that it was created. It doesn't say that it was just made. It says it was in heaven and it came down. So what does that mean? It could mean that it already existed. For how long? No one is sure. But even when Jesus spoke, he says, I have prepared a place for you. And here's something to think about, though. If the new Jerusalem is the bride city, if the new Jerusalem is the bride city, there has been ideas about how the new Jerusalem could have existed during the millennial kingdom when Christ ruled for a thousand years because the church has been glorified at that time. And if we had gone to be with the Lord, we would already have been in the bride city, right? Do you guys get that? There's a thousand years that Christ reigns and we're talking about the eternal state at the end. And if this new Jerusalem have been, is it here towards the eternal state at the end? Or is it here during the millennial kingdom when Christ rules for a thousand years? Right? Where do all the believers go during this time? So there are speculations that perhaps this new Jerusalem is suspended over earth, this earth, this old one. And we who are glorified, right, when we die, we who are glorified will be up there in the New Jerusalem. While in the, physical, in the thousand years, in the millennial kingdom, there are still people in this earth that, that aren't ready to be up there. So we would be up here, and when Christ rules in the thousand years, there are still people roaming around, still needing salvation. Anyone who dies in the kingdom will be sent automatically up there. Then once the millennial kingdom is over, the earth flees away. And then God creates a new heaven and a new earth, and the new Jerusalem enters into that. I can't speak more about the millennial kingdom as we look into the timeline, but those are some of the questions that people ask. What happens to people who have died earlier? Or what about during the millennial reign? What about during the tribulation? And there are, there are answers for all that. But everyone is accounted for. Everyone is accounted for. Moving on to the third characteristic of the eternal state. Number three. There will be God's presence and God's existence. There will be God's presence and God's existence. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. You see, all the veils are gone. All the restrictions are gone. And we don't have to wonder anymore. We can finally know what this dimension is. We can enter into the dimension of God's presence and God's existence. The new heaven and the new earth are going to have the crown jewel, the new Jerusalem. But there in the midst of the new Jerusalem is going to be the very presence of God himself in blazing glory. Here's an interesting thought in verse 22 of the same chapter. Verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You know what a temple is for? A temple is to hold the symbol of his presence. That's what they use temples for. But get this, if you've got his presence, you don't need a symbol anymore, right? It's like the difference between having a picture and having a person. Once you've got the person, you don't need to look at the picture anymore. When we get to heaven, we're not going to need any kind of symbol because of the living presence of God. Look at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Pastor John MacArthur calls this the divine Kleenex, right? I think it's a great great name for it. It's exciting to realize that God is going to be the one, he's going to be the one who just removes all the trials. God drives All tears. An exact Greek terminology is, God shall wipe away every single tear. It's not a general statement. It's a specific one. Tears of misfortune, of poverty. Tears of loneliness. Tears of lost love. Tears of sympathy and mercy. Tears of penitence. Tears of remorse. Tears of disappointment. Tears of regret. Years of yearning what cannot be. Tears of unfulfilled dreams. Whatever tears wiped away. And then it says this, and there shall be no more what? Death. The greatest of all moral curses is gone. What happened to death? If you look back one chapter, Chapter 20, verse 14. It says, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. No more death. There's no more death, but instead eternal living. Then he says, verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And you might have noticed that he mentions crying again, when he already mentioned talking about wiping away tears. And you might ask, well, what's the difference? And the difference really is that with tears, right, There's a, a in the indication of the Greek is a, is a silent sorrow. The crying is a vocal sorrow. So God's going to eliminate silent sorrow, vocal sorrow, pain, death, for the former things have passed away. Now, if we go back to our text in chapter 21, verse 5, John starts to list out the positives. Verse 5, it says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new, and... He Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. God sits on the throne, and he said, write this down, John. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true, or or faithful and true, with some of your translations. He says, you can believe this. Get this down. Then in verse 6, he said to me, And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. It is done. Those three words are the most refreshing words that you can hear from God. Because when was the last time we heard this? It was when Christ said it. He said it on the cross, on the cross. When he finished the work of redemption, he said, "It is finished. But when God says it here, he means it's really done. Everything is done, not just the redemption, but everything, the recreation of the universe the end of all sin and wickedness, everything. So God then says, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And then he says to me, it is done, right? It is done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And what's interesting here is the unique title of God is shared between the father and the son, When referring to Alpha and Omega, it is usually speaking of God the Father. When speaking of the beginning and the end, this is usually referring to Jesus Christ the Son. But it shows here that Jesus and God are one, sitting on this throne, ruling, and they're exclaiming that this is done. In the midst of all this talk about heaven, the Lord then just interjects an invitation. invitation. He says, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. All right, you're hearing about heaven and in in the midst of all this, the Lord says, it can be yours. You can drink if you recognize you're thirsty and come to me. For the thirsty, all right, For the thirsty, for those who are thirsty, He is the end in the sense that He will be the source of their life forever. He will be their God and they will be His children, enjoying His inheritance forever and ever. He was the fountain of their life in creation and He will be the fountain of their life in the consummation. This is God at His best. This is what we've been waiting for, where God sits on his throne in heaven, ruling all of his kingdom. But not only that, it's God dwelling with man. It's God dwelling with man. That's what we're looking for. This personal relationship that we know of, we finally get to meet God. We get to see him face to face. No more Turning around, no more curtains, no more mediator. We get to see our Father, we get to see Jesus Christ. God dwells with man here. This brings us to our fourth characteristic. Of the eternal state. Number four, there will be believers only in the eternal state. There will be believers only in the eternal state. Look at Revelation 21 7 to 8. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. All right, this is only for those who conquer, those who overcome the world. 1 John 5.5 5 says, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? Those are the ones that will be in heaven. So if you're thinking, i like to go to heaven. i like to be where God is forever. Then believe that Jesus is the son of God. Right? Because those are the overcomers. Those are the conquerors. To be a conqueror is an exciting thing, right? If you're a believer, you're a conqueror. And I don't have time to go over the first part of Revelations, but in chapter 3, verse 5, the Lord says to John, the one who conquers will be clothed, thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Then if you go down to verse 12, you go a little further down, he says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God. This is Jesus talking. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God, out of heaven, and my own new name. So three times he writes. He, he writes his name. You know what they used to do in the ancient days? They used to make pillars in big famous buildings, and the pillar would be the image of a famous person. You and I are going to be important enough to be placed right there with God. That is, in a spiritual sense, of course, you know, we're not going to be actual pillars. That's not what the glorified body is. You know, we're not going to look like a pillar. And it says, never shall he go out of it. In other words, you don't have to drift from the presence of God. Then God is going to brand us three times, right? As his own with three names. And then to put the cherry on top in verse 21 of chapter 3, it says, the one who conquers, I will grant him, and listen to this, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This is obviously Jesus saying this, and can anything beat this? Right? The Father's on the throne, Jesus is on the throne, and we're on the throne with him. Right? What an what a imagery this is for us. But in contrast, in verse 8, if you go back to Revelation 21, there's a huge contrast. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is a frightening reality. The unbeliever misses out on the blessings and their final destination is set and will never change. There's no more changing of mind. There's no more grace. There's no more mercy. It ends here for them. And they also miss out on the next characteristic of the eternal state. Number five, there will be a paradise. So look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And let's stop right there. This angel is one of the angels that was part of the end of the tribulation where these terrible plagues were poured out. And so one of the angels who had been in on that judgment service is now coming to John. And he spoke to him saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Right? Look at verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So here's the picture of the bride city again what's the Bride city going to be like? Verse 11. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a rare most, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. In Ezekiel 1, it's the same thing. It says her light was like a stone, most precious, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now jasper to us, conjures up the wrong thought. A, a jasper stone, from our angle, is an opaque kind of thing. But here, the word has to do with a diamond. Right? The Hebrew equivalent in Exodus 28 is translated diamond. So you know what this whole thing is? The whole place looks like one big diamond. It's one big cubed diamond. The holy city. It blazes like a crystal diamond. And you know what? You can imagine a diamond prism, with the glory of God just blasting out everywhere, and filling the universe, and all radiating the splendor of God. I remember when I went to look for a, a ring for my wife. Uh, I went, I went with my yeah, I went with my dad, and I went to a store, and I said, I want. I actually didn't really know what I was doing. I pretended I knew what I was doing. And I was just looking, you know, like, they tell you to, like, look at this diamond. And, and they have these lights, like, up in the ceiling that make every diamond look really nice, even if it looks gross. It just is something about the light that just bounces off the, these diamonds. But I found one. I remember as I did more research, I said, I want one that's perfect in symmetry, it's perfect. It's, it's um, I don't know what they call it. There's a ratio that's one-one. Um, it's called like the, it's a, it's a cushion cut, but it's a, it's a perfect something. I just remember it was perfect something. I forget it all. Right? I don't need to know anymore. And I remember I found one where it was perfect when I looked at the cut. And it matters if it's perfect because when the light bounces into that diamond, if one part is not even with the other, the light bounces off differently. So you have to have everything equivalent. And I remember I found it, and I took my, I think it was my iPhone 4 at that time. <laughs> it was, and I was like, oh man, I hope I can get this on on phone. This phone is not as great. And um, I remember I went outside in the sun, and that thing, blinded me and I said that's the one I want this one I want this one that's so blinding it's like I almost got LASIK off of it <laughs> that's how blinding I wanted it I, I mean light was beaming into my eyes I couldn't even see I was handing out cash everywhere <laughs> and I knew this is what I wanted and this is how I imagined I mean, this is just a little rock, right? This is a little rock like this. But you're talking about this paradise, this new Jerusalem, this new city, the bride city. We're talking about a giant diamond. And it's not just radiating the sun or the S-U-N sun. It's talking about the glory of God, the glory of Jesus Christ, the sun, In all of his glory, in all of his splendor, it's radiating through this diamond prism. I mean, just look at his design. Look at how it's designed. Verse 12. It had a a wall, great and high, right? And you say, what for? Why do we need walls, right? That's a symbol of exclusion, right? There should be no ungodly thing here. Anything that is apart from God is kept out. Now notice It has 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels and names written on the gates, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. And you might think, why does he name Israel? Because he is showing his covenant relationship. Then there will be three gates on each of the four sides, and incidentally, the number 12 signifies completeness in the Bible. The number 12 features prominently in the Bible, right? When you think about the Old Testament, the book of Genesis states that there were 12 sons of Jacob. There were 12 sons form the 12 tw- tribes of Israel. The New Testament tells us that Jesus had 12 apostles. And now it's 12 gates, 12 angels, 12 tribes, 12 foundations, 12 apostles, 12 pearls, 12 kinds of fruit on the tree, 12,000 furlongs, and 12 by 12 cubits. That's completeness. And if you look at verse 13, on the east, there were three gates, and on the north, three gates, and on the south, three gates, and on the west, three, three gates. It's a square city. We can go in and out and all around wherever we want to go. Verse 12 And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, right? I mean, this is awesome. The apostles' names are going to be there. And now go on to verse 15, and the one who spoke with me, this angel says to John, here's a golden rod. He says, measure the city and the gates of it and its wall. Right? This golden rod is to measure the city and the gates of it and its wall. The city's exact dimensions are then measured and reported to be 12,000 stadia, the equivalent of 1,400 miles in length, width, and height. Even though these proportions may have symbolic importance, doesn't mean that they can't be literal. In fact, Scripture emphasizes that the dimensions are given in man's measurement, right? In verse 17. If, if the city really has these dimensions, what more could we expect God to say to convince us? A metropolis of this size in the middle of the United States, which stretch from Canada to Mexico and from the Appalachian Mountains to the California border. The New Jerusalem is all the square footage anyone could ask for. And what's even more astounding is that the city's height is 1,400 miles. We don't need to worry that heaven will be crowded. The ground ground level of the city will be nearly 2 million square miles. This is 40 times bigger than England and 15,000 times bigger than London. It's 10 times as big as France or Germany and far larger than India. But remember, that's just the ground level. This city could have over 600,000 stories. Now, the beauty of heaven is described in verse 18. Verse 18, the building of the wall is like jasper. Here's diamond again. And the city was pure gold like clear glass. This is some different kind of gold. It's like transparent gold. Right? And you notice, you kind of notice it, but you hear that when we talk about these jewels and we talk about gold, we always say, you always read that everything in heaven is kind of transparent Right? Everything in heaven is transparent. Why? Because at all points, at all times, the glory of God must be visible. And everything is just something off of which the glory of God is reflected. The glory of God is bouncing everywhere. Gold streets like clear glass and the foundation of the wall of the city was garnished with all manner or precious stone. Now all around the wall, the foundation is going to be clear stones, all different colors. You can see the glory of God just blasting through every different color gem. Right? And Justin read it earlier, just the different types of gems that there are. Right? You have crystallite. There's a gold color. You have sardonyx. It's red. You have Topaz. A yellow green kind of color. Barrel. You have a sea green kind of color. But imagine just light and the glory of God just illuminating kind of through all this. All of these giant jewels all the way around, transparent with color, and the glory of God blasting through with color. And then we always talk about the pearly gates, right? Verse 21, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was one pearl. Every gate is a giant pearl. One pearly gate. This is is some description. This is some description. And the reason why There are all these descriptions about jewel, about gold, about light, about diamonds, about how high and how wide, and the reason why there are numbers is because God wants to let you know that this isn't just some kind of mystical thing that you have to imagine. There are things here on earth that are very similar to that of the new earth, to that of Heaven, the new heaven, the new Jerusalem. There are things here that are very similar. And that's why he's able to tell you some of these things. And you understand it. You can picture it in your mind. And again, even with all this, right, there's no temple. There's no temple. You don't have to go somewhere to worship. God just dominates throughout the entire universe. And then you look at verse 23. The city had no need of sun, neither the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it. And the lamb is the lamp of it, right? And we've been saying that this is a big prism of God's glory, and the nations of them who are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory and honor into it. So, all of these big shots, all the kings that are here on earth, right? They're going to trade in all their glory and give it to God. And then you get to verse 25. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night. The gates are never closed. They're never closed. City gates used to be closed at night. There's no need to close those gates. There's no need. Verse 26. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations to it. Anything that was received, anything that was received, any glory in this life will turn its glory over to God. And there will be no glory for anything but God. And everybody will be satisfied forever to give him glory. And then we get to verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's nobody that's going to get in there except the holy who knows Jesus Christ. Right? And that's a remarkable truth and a frightening one. No one will get there unless they know Jesus Christ. Well, We reached the end of tonight's passage, but I want to leave you with some thoughts with a quote from C.S. Lewis. He said, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. See, as you get older, you pick up more responsibilities. You endure more stressful situations. And sometimes you can't describe it except that you're just tired. And sometimes when I see you guys, I ask, how's life? And you'll say, "Mm -hmm, life is life. Or maybe you'll say, uh, life is tiring. But, you know, aren't we? We're faithful believers, right? And we shouldn't feel this way. We should be energetic and ready to serve the Lord. But what we're really feeling is a homesickness. And we don't even know it. As believers, we feel this homesickness and we don't even know it. We're sojourners passing through this temporary earth we call home, but our real home is in heaven. One theologian suggests our greatest affliction is not anxiety or even guilt, but rather homesickness, a nostalgia or an irradicable yearning to be at home with God. It's like being on a trip for a long time and you just want to be home. Home sweet home, where you could be comfortable. You know, sweatpants and all, your own things. As Christians, desire is a signpost pointing to heaven. Every longing for better health is a longing for the new earth. Every longing for romance is a longing for the ultimate romance with Christ. Every desire for intimacy is a desire for Christ. Every thirst for beauty is a thirst for Christ. Every taste of joy is but a foretaste of a greater and more vibrant joy than can be found on earth as it is now. When we grasp the reality of the new earth, our present, earthly lives suddenly matter. Conversations with loved ones matters. The taste of good matters. Work, leisure, creativity, and intellectual stimulation matter. Rivers and trees and flowers matter. Laughter matters. Service matters. Why? Because they are eternal. Life on earth matters not because it's the only life we have, but precisely because it, it isn't. It's the beginning of a life that will continue without end, it's the precursor of life on the new earth. Eternal life doesn't begin when we die, it has already begun if you are a believer in Christ. So listen to this. There's always more that we can study about heaven. But the important question is, how do I get there? Well, that's the question that Thomas asked. Lord, we don't know the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to me except through the Father. No man comes, sorry, I reversed it. No man comes to the Father except by me. All right, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Heaven is for those who who know and love Jesus Christ. And he offers you that salvation. And he says, if you're thirsty, come and drink. It's free. It's free. May you just continue to have the eternal state and all that it is in the forefront of your mind as you continue to serve and as you continue to live your Christian walk. Remember that we are given a temporary time here on earth. And we are given a mission to evangelize, to share the gospel, so that others may come into this joyous occasion with us, to be able to celebrate with us. And until then, may we just be faithful and what we do, and all that we know, and all that God has entrusted us with. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for just your revelation to John, and that he has written these things down so that we know truth, Lord, so that we have a hope and a concrete understanding of what heaven is like, what the new earth is like, and what the new Jerusalem would be like, the bride city. Lord, we long most of all to be with you and to see your glory radiating throughout the city, Lord, throughout the universe, No one has seen it that we know of right now on this earth. None of our friends have seen it. But there will be a day when we pass away from this earth and we go up and meet you face to face. The veil is torn could see all of your glory and splendor Lord we look forward to that day we look forward to when you will reign for all eternity Lord even as we sang the song behold our God that should be the cry of our hearts and of our soul behold our God seated on the throne it is all done that is what we look forward to. And it gives us hope, Lord, because you say at the end of Revelation 22 that you are coming. So Lord, I pray that you would just make us great stewards of things that we have, the life that you have given to us to share this good news so that others would come and enjoy this paradise with us and that they would come to enjoy you, Lord forever and ever. Pray all this in name. Amen.